Hey, it's Traffic Policy Radio. And we have a special guest tonight, Genevieve Valentine. And I can't hear our theme music. Of course, it's not going to play. All right, we're just going to skip the theme music. Love Talk Radio. What the? Ah. All right, so things haven't gone quite. Maybe one day we'll get this down right. All right, so <laughs> welcome to Graphic Policy Radio, the show that makes us comics and politics. This is for folks who wonder if Superman's Ferguson-like stance will become an upcoming debate topic presidential candidates will have to answer. Uh, before we get to our special guest, uh, it wasn't, that was a clunker, I'll admit it was a clunker. Um, before we get to our special guest, I want to welcome my weekly co-host, Alana. How are you? What's happening in your world? Uh- Oh, uh, what, what's, what's happening is I just can't wait to pick up the new phonogram on paper since I've already read it uh, in writing. I, it's causing my cell phone music player to backfire. Um, it's making spontaneous music start coming on my speakers, and I'm utterly convinced that I'm now a master of the art of retromancy. So I'm sure once I actually am able to purchase a print copy, I'll even have more music-inspired hijinks occurring to me nice. day by day. Excellent. That's happening to you too, right? I haven't read it yet, so. And I'm not quite as musically attuned as you. It's okay. If there's random music that appears in the middle of this podcast and you can't explain why, I'm going to blame Phonogram. Okay. Uh, So joining us also is our frequent guest and co-host, Emma Huwa. How are you doing? I'm awesome. Uh, I'm doing great. Um, of course, I am missing the the raw that Stephen Amell is going to be appearing on, so we'll have to cast out on the DVR. But other than that, I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for joining us, and that's understandable. I would definitely watch that one because it'll be entertaining for uh, for uh, folks who enjoy Arrow. Um, and it's the first time you've been on. I kind of want to congratulate you. Uh, you're now the comics editor for the Rainbow Hub, and you have your own uh, weekly comics podcast called Fantheon. Uh, Fantheon. So welcome and congrats to all that. Thank you. All right. So big guest time. This is one we've been looking forward to for quite some time. Uh, Genevieve Valentine is a science fiction and fantasy writer. In 2014, she took over as writer for DC Comics Catwoman, sending Selena Kyle in a whole new direction as a key player in Gotham's mob family. Uh, Latest issue hits shelves this week. Uh, Her first novel, uh, Mechanic, A Tale of Circus Tris. I'm going to just butcher that last word. Uh, Tress Salty, is that right? Yeah. Uh, won the yeah. Sweet. Uh, won the Crawford Award for a first fantasy novel and was shortlisted for the Nebula. Genevieve, welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. Um, Emma, well, actually, we're going to do our normal first question. So the first question that uh, we usually start off with is, how did you actually get into the comic business and started writing? Uh, well, those are two different questions. Uh, I started writing as a kid doing prose. Uh, I got serious about it shortly after college, um, and I did a bunch of short stories and a few novels. Uh, comic books came about because during the events of Batman Eternal, they made Catwoman a mob boss, and they wanted that reflected in the comic. And I got a call from Mark one day saying, what if Catwoman was a mob boss? And I went, oh, my God, I will call you back in five minutes with a pitch. Uh, went down, wrote the artsy farsiest pitch of my entire life, and called him back in five minutes. And it worked. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. It was so, 
surreal, but I loved it. It was great. <laughs> So how much how much of the pitch has actually made it into storyline? That's a really good question. Originally, it was only a six-issue arc, and the big thing was, uh, we don't care about spoilers here, do we? Anything that's on the shelves is no. fair game? Yeah, yeah I think everything's fair game. Okay, yeah. so originally it was only the six issues, and the big turning point was the fact that Selena ordered someone killed in cold blood and then realized that that was something that she could not live down. Um, the more we started sketching it out and outlines and everything, we realized that it would be great to give it more breathing room and everything else. And so that sort of became the, the point at which she realizes that this is an untenable situation, but she can't get out until she makes sure that everyone is okay. Um, so there ended up being a sense of... Leadership is a weird word to use with Selena Kyle always, I think. Like, I think she wouldn't want to use it. Um, but there's a sense of stewardship in a way, like she got everybody into this problem and she's going to get them the hell out before she can get away clean. So I think that a lot of what this second arc is becoming, and now I have to, I have to really work on avoiding spoilers. Uh, I think what this second arc is becoming is an exploration of Selena's identity as someone who can do both Catwoman and Selena Kyle and live with them both. Hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah. I know that for me, like, what got me reading the series was Emma told me that I should be reading the series. So Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do what Emma tells me to do. But, um, I, but yeah, like, that was a storyline that, you know, the, the whole turn of events and how it's gone is something that I think no one had really considered before, and it's such an interesting question to pose as a what-if. I'm, Except now I'm really series. excited that that it was perfect timing for this. Like, I'm excited that the team on Batman Eternal were like, what if she was a mob boss? Which is a fantastic position to put her in, specifically because she hates the idea of leadership. Like, she hates the idea of people dying on her watch and having it be her fault. Um, And, of course, as a mob boss, there's literally no way to avoid that. Like, there's absolutely no way. Um, And I'm really lucky that I got asked to participate right at that point in the story where it was sort of the point of maximum harm, if that makes sense. Like, she's going to have to come out of this on the other side and be a slightly different person. And I think that that's such an interesting ringer to put someone through. Which makes it sound like I want her to be miserable, and I don't. But, like, you can't just want her to be a mob boss and then be wisecracking the next day. Like, that's just tough. Yeah. Speaking of not walking away from stuff, though, your handling of Batman's death in the comic was so emotionally real to me. Um, the scene where you have her finding out just is like devastating in a way that I don't think any of the other bad books I'd quite captured had, had pulled it off except for maybe Grayson. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And I love Grayson. Oh my God, it's such a fun book. Yeah. Sorry, I'm not really Oh, no, no, for sure. And that scene in particular is so neat because it's one of those reminders of where we are because selena reads it off of you know a tablet screen you know this is where we're at like nobody had somebody a newspaper like you would have seen in in the godfather she sees it off of a um a tablet screen but um david messina's art on that like just her facial expression there uh when she kind of sees it and she knows that there's too much on her face that you know it doesn't make any sense for selena kyle to be upset about this because they don't, there's so few members of the family that know that she's Catwoman that, you know, that's when you kind of see her in ego and that's, 
she's she's the only person that Selena can even share that with, that even in that capacity, right? And you just there's no words in those in those sequence of panels. It's just yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate that. When the when the pencils came in for that, I sort of gasped. I was like, what? Yes. Um, when we got together for the VAT Summit way back at, I guess, God, toward the end of last year, because the beginning of this year, um, Scott came in and sort of put it on the table and said, what if Jim Gordon is the new Batman and Batman has total amnesia? And we were like, mm, um, and I was so stoked to be able to have that moment in the comics. Like, it was, it was great serendipity. I loved it. So, uh, you know, obviously there, there's the, the comic, uh, to me, is more um, like a traditional mob story as opposed to kind of a superhero series, um, which is really cool because I'm a huge fan of that type of story. Um, for you, are there like classic mob tales that you go to? Are you kind of a fan of that genre in general? Um, is there anything you just, you know, maybe lift, riffing off a little bit? Um, and then the follow-up is the thing that always gets me. You see it in the series. There's so much to keep track of. Um, <laughs> you gotta have like a book somewhere of like all the double crosses and who's working who and and uh, like all this material. Um, it's always impressive to kind of like how much of that goes into these type of stories. Um, in terms of the mob stuff, I actually didn't look at classical mob stuff so much as I looked at 16th century and 15th century court dynamics. Um, not just because of the historical quotes, but because there was nothing more cutthroat than being a courtier in, like, the court of Queen Elizabeth, the court of Henry VIII. You were constantly jockeying for position, and if you screwed up, you were dead. Um, and so much of that was the stuff that you wore. It was the things that you said. It was the dirt that you could get on people and, like, hold for five years and deploy at the right moment. Um, and I was devouring Queen Elizabeth's biographies, I think a lot, a lot earlier than I came to mob stories. And then by the time I hit The Godfather, I was like, it's just like court. I love it. Um, the police stuff has definitely been influenced by mob stuff, um, especially now that we're sort of looking at a new status quo for Batman and we're sort of seeing Batman as like a tool of the police and how comfortable is he with that and all that kind of stuff. And I wanted to reflect that a little bit, even though Selena doesn't have a deep tie with the cops that she can keep for very long in the position that she's in for sort of obvious reasons. Um, but I, I wanted to, I'm very happy actually that you mentioned that it seemed really complicated because I wanted to present a situation that has no easy outs, like something that she can't punch her way out of. Like it's so complicated and there's so many moving parts that things are going to get messy and there's nothing she can do about it because she can't be everywhere. One of the things that I found really interesting about how Catwoman specific is handling the Jim Gordon issue is um, in, in that same issue that we find out, you know, that uh, that, that Bruce is dead, um, we get Black Mask talking about how he sees the blimp and Jim as being something that he can use, that Batman is kind of reachable and exploitable um, because he's part of the system, whereas when he was independent from it, it would be a lot harder to hijack. Um, was there any specific inspiration or was it just kind of like any kind of real world analogs or was it just sort of 
trying to get inside of um, Roman's head in that sense. I think a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. I think that it's very rare that you get sort of a man of power who has institutional influence, who doesn't look at some kind of super weapon, whether that's legal power, whether that's physical power, and doesn't look at it and think, how can I make this work as a resource for me? Um, And one of the things that I think is really interesting about Black Mask and about Penguin as well is that they have these, you know, these very comic booky physical traits and like it's amazing and you can see the penguin silhouette a mile away and know exactly who you're dealing with and like that's awesome. But what makes them creepy is they're smart enough that no matter how many times you knock them down, they're going to claw their way back up and they're always going to get more powerful than you think is possible because in a system of power that's as inherently corrupt as Gotham is, once you get to a certain level, that system is actually pushing you the rest of the way up. Um, And I think that one of the things that balances Batman amid a lot of totally legitimate jokes that like the richest guy in town is playing, is playing hero. Um, What balances him is the fact that he recognizes that he is part of that system and it is his job to fight back for the smaller guys. And of course, Roman, no matter how, how high up he climbs is going to look at a police sanctioned Batman and think I can use that. I can use him even if he's wrong. And I think that he is wrong. But it's absolutely correct of him to look at that blimp and think, I've got this. This is for me. And I think that makes him even scarier as a villain, not just punching and kicking, but like that idea that he is aware of this system and he's going to make it work for him. Were there any um, storylines that uh, the Roman's been involved in that kind of helped you gain a foothold on the character? Was it more kind of just looking at those mentalities of... um, like the core politics and uh, and mob movies that informed him. I mean, I think the Brubaker one is an amazing look at that, obviously. Um, and then in terms of, oh, God, what would his cinematic equivalent be? Probably someone from Boardwalk Empire. Like, the guys on Boardwalk Empire had the police in their pocket. And sometimes that was great because the mobsters that were very charming managed to get out because, of course, the cops were in their pocket, and that was fun. And then you realize five minutes later that someone you didn't like also had the cops in their pocket. And you were like, oh, God, I bought into the system and it sucked. Um, and as someone who, loves, <laughs> someone who loves Boardwalk Empire, I was constantly like, I, I forgot that it sucks both ways. Okay, fine. Okay, fine. Um, so there was definitely an awareness of that as I was writing this. Like, a corrupt system might work for people that you like, but it also works for people that you hate. So fight back. That's a real world thing, you know? I'm sorry? Yeah. That definitely feels like a, a real world analog in terms of interpretation of the law as well. Unfortunately. Um, which I think is something that Gotham is getting into, particularly recently with things like We Are Robin. Like, it's an acknowledgement that Gotham is closer than some things to a real world analog. And, that, you know... I can't speak for anybody else, but when I'm picking up We Are Robin, I find it very heartening, the idea that these kids are like, you know what, we can help, we're going to help. It's great. How much coordination do you all do as like a bat team to, um, you know, keep your stories kind of on track and um, not contradicting each other? That's an excellent question. Um, 
the nice thing about Gotham is that it's an elastic city. Uh, the nice thing about the actual Bat family working now is that you can call pretty much anybody and be like, okay, question. Where is Black Canary? Has she played a show in Burnside recently enough that Stephanie could be wearing a Black Canary t-shirt while she's training? Um, the answer was yes, and I was very excited about it. <laughs> yeah, I saw that uh, yeah, preview. Oh, my God. That's going to be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have loved writing Stephanie. Like, she's such, she's such a dork, and she has so much heart, but she is surrounded by a bunch of people who have trained their entire lives to be, like, master martial artists and keep it all inside and repress everything, and she's walking around like, this is awesome. It's like, oh, Steph. But, yes, yeah, she's a huge Black Canary fan. Um, we've coordinated some things with Scott. We're getting some general ideas of big twists in the Batman universe. Uh, the first time he sent over the sketch of the blimp, I got so excited. And now I've had David put it in whenever possible because I want it to be like the eye of Sauron where it is always pointed at Gotham. And it should be comforting, but it never is. And I think that's so <laughs> exciting. So that kind of stuff has really worked I think, to make the book feel like a part of a larger Gotham. Um, and everybody that I've talked to has been super nice about coordinating with me about where everybody is and, like, where do you think so-and-so would be right now? I am determined at some point that Catwoman and Grayson should have a really awkward run-in for no reason. They're both breaking into a building for different reasons, run into each other, and they're like, are you shitting me? It's a dream. <laughs> it's a dream. We, You've got to come uh, yeah. back to Gotham someday. Yeah. There needs to be some kind of a, a brunch, and I've said this before in my reviews, that we need um, Helena Bertinelli and Selena Kyle and Eco and, and Stephanie, some kind of like the daughters of, of criminals and, and superheroes who are kicking ass, some kind of a, a breakfast club or something. I would <laughs> love that. I would love that. That would be amazing. Like the worst poker night ever. Everybody's playing for increasingly high stakes, and Stephanie is just eating M&Ms and watching things go to hell. It would be amazing. <laughs> that's the annual, right? That's, that's the annual? Yes, done. That's the annual. I'm glad to be a server. <laughs> oh, speaking of, um, how, who, how, how were you guys able to bring spoiler into the comic? Because it's such a natural fit here. And it didn't occur to me till I saw it, you know, to bring her um, the story. That was something of a Mark Doyle brainchild. We wanted to have a character come in who wasn't quite a mentee for Selena because, again, Selena has never looked at a potential mentee and thought, oh, here is someone that I can shape to be the me of tomorrow because she doesn't particularly like the me of tomorrow any more than she likes the me of today. So if someone walks up to her like, I want you to mentor me. She'd be like, would you please step out of my way before I kill you? Thanks very much. Um, and, of course, the only person that would walk up to Selena and have enough reason after Batman Eternal to be like, no, no, I want you to mentor me, and this is not a request, is Stephanie, who has never taken no for an answer in her life. That, yeah, that, that's the thing that, one of the things that makes it so intriguing about um, some of the the new opportunities that that the post flashpoint world has um, has offered because in in the past we saw Stephanie was I don't know if I want to say a tourist but she she ranked out quite a few little names for herself she was spoiler um, and then as you said didn't take no for an answer she forced her way into the Robin spot as brief as that way and that was and then mm-hmm. became 
Batgirl. So I think to me what's so exciting about this is that she had so much friction along the way, you know, just starting out and being spoiler and then moving to Robin and then even fighting Babs herself to become Batgirl that it's it almost seems obvious in hindsight that she's taking sort of the, the Catwoman route this time because it seems to me like it's a much more natural path given her background um, in either version. Um, I'm super thrilled that you're picking up on this. I'm making dorky faces over the phone, and I'm glad you can't see them because they're probably not pretty. Um, I obviously feel the same way, and one of the things that we are trying to do with this arc is sort of explore the limits of the gray area that Selena lives in. Um, Again, like, you know, she's fine with beating people up when necessary, and she doesn't mind killing when necessary, and that's perfectly fine, and there's plenty of people in Gotham who feel that way. But, like, cold, like, in cold blood ordering someone to be murdered, like, that's a, that's a dark gray. That's a really dark gray. Um, and Stephanie is coming in here thinking that because she has gone up against someone who was bad, she has the potential to go either way. And, of course, Selena does not want to influence her one way or the other, given what she's currently going through. And so she has sort of more or less taken up with Aiko for the moment, but, of course, for everybody there comes the moment when they realize here and no further. And part of the fun of this arc is deciding if she gets there and if so, when and where. Clearly that the character... <laughs> um, so the character's got a pretty... Stephanie's got a pretty rabid fan base. Um, was there any, like, nervousness using her, knowing how passionate some people are about her? I'm trying to be as, like, diplomatic as possible on that. You were very diplomatic. Um, I mean, the answer is yes. The answer was yes with Catwoman. The answer was yes every time I wrote a scene with Batman. Like, getting a chance to play in the sandbox is amazing, and I've had a great time, but these are characters that have meant a lot to people for years, for decades. Like, that's a huge deal. It's scary every time I sit down to write a script. Like, you don't want to fuck up. Like how how much of a Batman fan were you beforehand? Like, um, you, you do a lot of research beforehand uh, of like get, diving into it, and I gotta imagine you you did a lot of like Catwoman uh, reading as well before taking over. Uh, I did some, and it was very weird research. I did some from sort of her earliest possible days, where all that anybody in Gotham ever did was steal jewelry. Like, that's all anybody in Gotham ever did in the first, like, year and a half. It was just Batman walking around trying to take jewels back from people. Um, and then I read some of the more recent stories, and I was trying to get caught up on that. Uh, I caught up on some of her New 52 stuff. I watched Batman Returns, like, 150 times, because why wouldn't you? Um, but a lot of my research was the historical stuff. Like, because I'm a huge nerd, I sat down and I was like, okay, okay. Selena would not go into something like this and not immediately, like, close the doors, open the every book in the study, and read up and try and figure out what the fuck she was going to do. Uh, so the idea of the historical quotes was sort of to give us a sense of the stakes that she is carrying with her and can't show anybody else. Because it's not like she has a confidant where she can sit down and be like, man, Queen Elizabeth has this problem, too. Like, right now she's in a position where she has to talk to people all day long and not give them any hints about what's actually going on. Uh, so we wanted the historical quotes to sort of 
be the thread that carried you along that way. How long does it take you to actually come up up with those quotes? Um, I, I mean, they're amazing. I love the inclusion in the comics with them of of them. Thank you. Uh, some of them came really easy, and I had you know I had the books to hand and everything else. And sometimes you're looking for the right quote, and it takes you something like 15 hours. Um, and I finally found the quote that I want for issue 45, and I can't tell it to you because it is a spoiler. But you know, you're, I'm looking at the dynamics of everybody in the history that I am using, and I am trying to use a quote from someone who is in a similar position narratively to the main POV character in that issue. I'm trying so hard to avoid spoilers. Um, but that's why not every quote is from Queen Elizabeth, not every quote is from Cesare Lucrezia Borgia. Like, the idea is to sort of open the iris as we go in terms of historical quotes so that you get an idea of who is positioned in relation to whom and why this quote from them is important for what's going to happen in the book. Um, speaking of historical quotes, now, correct me if I'm wrong, if I just dream this, but I, I feel like you had mentioned something to do with the Artemisia painting um, Judith slaying Hall of Furnace a while ago. How long are we going to have to wait for that? I can't say. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> about that okay. or no. anything. I thought I'd heard something to that effect. Maybe not. <laughs> you might have heard something about that, but I don't think I'm allowed to say anything about that. Okay, yet. fair enough. Oh, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. It's very different than doing novel promotion. In a novel promotion, you're trying to say as much as possible about your book to get people to read it. And in comics, you I, get one chapter a month, and it's like, don't tell anybody. Well, that's a big question I wanted to ask. Like, how is the transition going from writing one big whole story at a time to having to parcel it out bit by bit and and get the uh, the reception to it as it goes as opposed to being able to say, okay, here's the whole thing? I mean, it's obviously it's night and day. Uh, you write a novel sort of in a case by yourself and you write the whole thing and then you wait and then you edit the entire thing two or three times and then you send it to your editor and you and your editor sort of work on it. But usually the thing you hand in is more or less what happens and you have written it yourself in this little writing cave that's so cliche that everybody talks about it and that's how a book happens. Uh, the comic book process is so much more collaborative that I, like it, it, it almost doesn't register as the same process just because it's so it's so great to come up with character sketches. It's so great to like decide how a scene is going to play out this way and then see it come to life. It's so great to call Brendan and make sure that Black Canary played a show in Burnside recently. Um, it feels it feels like writing. 10 scenes in a really big movie and then you get to watch the rest of the movie every month, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, yeah. It did not make sense. That was a long pause. No, I'm sorry. I I wanted to give Ella space because she had so many good questions when we were talking about planning this show that I'm like, ah, oh, I want to make sure she gets them in. So <laughs> I'm punting it over to you, Emma. No pressure. But I really like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Well, building from that one, this is kind of a series of questions. Um, is 
So you've written a pretty decent amount about TV um, and that kind of side of serial fiction. Um, something that I've noticed a lot lately is that with comics in particular, it's a medium where the creators can be very available on social media and stuff. So when there's pressing questions of what's going to happen next, especially ones that I guess the easiest way to frame it have to do with representation or tangentially related to social justice issues. So if we have things like in Grayson where um, there's the, you know, am I straight panel when he's adjusting his bow tie or, you know, the questions about where's the relationship between Selena um, and Iko going or what's going on with Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn is that, is that, is it difficult to write around the sense of urgency that's developing here? I think that's a legitimate question. I think that I would be lying if I said that on some level the answer wasn't yes. Um, I do try to draw a line between what is relevant to me and what are things that are happening in the greater world of comics that I should be paying attention to in a more general way. Um but yes, it is something that I am thinking about, and it is something that, again, when I sit down to write the script, I don't want to fuck up. I don't want to fuck up on either end. Because um, you had the the power and pitfalls of shipping was was a really cool um, <laughs> sort okay, of look yes. at, at. Yeah, at the, at the, I really liked that piece. Mm-hmm. Um, at the Thank long you. burn and and the the will they or won't they aspect. Um, how has it changed your perspective that you're kind of on the other side now writing serial fiction? Um, because I'm guessing that, um, that you've just kind of observed these things, whether it's Mulder and Scully or Brazilian Isles or um, Bones and, uh, and Booth. But is it, how has you seeing those things play out on TV affect the way that you um, write relationships in comics since they're on a roughly similar interval? Uh, that is another very good question. My ideal is to sort of start in the middle of a relationship and let the backstory fill itself. Uh, as a serial medium, that is very hard to do in comics, unless you were starting at the very beginning of a run of comics and you have the number one issue and you can go from the very beginning. Um, so this is sort of a carryover from the prose aspect of things, that you have to start at the beginning and you have to do the work sort of in real time. Um, which I think is very interesting, but none of my books has been linear in terms of we're starting at the beginning, time passes, and the book ends. Uh, all of my books have been you start in the middle and then you flip back and forth and things sort of come to life as we go and this, that, the other. Comics, of course, if it's good, like you can't have a character show up and be like, you remember me from eight years ago, and then you spend two <laughs> issues on a flashback and all that kind of stuff. Penny Dreadful did it. Penny Dreadful did it amazingly well. But that was written by one dude, and it was only eight episodes. Um, so for me, the biggest, I think the biggest adjustment has been what you're talking about in terms of starting at the beginning and doing the work all the way through. And that has been a very interesting experience. It's so linear. It's so linear. <laughs> for guys who don't uh, well, know, I'm no. going to be tweeting out a link right now to Genevieve's about, um about uh, shipping and shows and will we or, will they or won't they get together um, so you guys can go read about that because it's a really good piece. 
one of one of my favorite things about the series so far is the coloring and what Lee Lowridge is doing with such a limited palette where you could almost you would almost get kind of just two colors or two hues across the whole thing. What does the collaborative processor on that look like? Oh my god, the process on that is amazing because he is a wizard and I hand him the inks and it comes back looking like that and I gasp and it's done. It is magic and I love it. I love it. Um, I'm going to sound like such a wizard for saying this, but the first time an issue ever came back, I'd seen the inks and it went to coloring and it came back and I opened it up and looked at it and it was literally like magic had happened because the, the coloring just brought everything to life and like the mood was set so amazingly. He had this great super saturated 80s noir thing that he's doing for the book, and it's amazing. Um, and some of the stuff, I came into comics cold. I wasn't quite prepared for it. I didn't have any idea what to expect, really, until I got it back, and I went, oh, yes, this, great. And so now every time I get an issue back, it's, oh, yes, this, great. But thank you for saying so. I think it looks beautiful. I think the coloring is just great. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's a really, I think, under-examined part of comics, especially when you have a colorist like him who does who makes such bold choices, and you see similar bold choices to a different effect in, black, in his work on Black Canary. But um, one of the things I thought was really cool is that in a lot of the initial scenes between Selene and Iko, there's a really strong clashing contrast between these kind of cooler blues and warm reds. And then when Stephanie appears, you start to see eggplant for the first time right um it, it's purple but that's just a bit of a stephanie brown in joke but it's uh <laughs> it, it kind of led me to read that as, as her kind of appearing as a sort of a synthesis or a middle ground between the two so there's a, a lot and then penguins panels if i'm not mistaken start to bring out a, a yellow that you don't really see elsewhere uh, that is all correct i am so excited that you were picking up on that uh but yes I agree. It is not something that I have asked for. It is something that Lee has put in there, but it is definitely, I think, one of my favorite things about how the story is developing visually is the fact that the color has not defined the mood, but the color picks up on the mood. Um, I love the coloring for Penguin. It's it's really sickly, which is perfect. Um, I'm, so, I'm so excited that you're noticing all these things. I love... I love all the neepery about comics. I'm I'm still new enough that every time I'm every time someone's like, Well the palette changes, I'm like, Yes, it does. Good. <laughs> but uh one part of the of the artistic aspect you have been involved in for sure is is choosing clothes and, and the fashion for it. Um yes, clothes. Okay, yes. Talk to me about clothes and fashion. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, like what goes into uh, choosing who wears what? I mean, is there, like, is, obviously there's very specific situations, like when uh, Selena wore that, uh, the Alexander McQueen piece to the opera, right? Um, but is there kind of a, a sort of starting point where it, it's like, this is the Selena mode, this is kind of the Ico mode, this is the Stephanie Brown mode? And I guess the biggest question to me is, considering different backgrounds, where is Stephanie's fashion going to diverge and come from relative to the other two? An excellent question. We will start at the beginning, uh, which was I wanted Selena to always be uh, 
as sharp as her mood required. So we had a couple of suits that were as fitted as possible. The collars were tall and starched. Uh, at one point in the, I think, second or third issue, she sort of goes on parade more or less and visits all the families and makes them essentially kiss her ring. And for that, it's the one time that you saw her in a skirt suit rather than a pantsuit. And it was uh, a 1930s suit worn by, I think, Kay Francis. And it was super nipped in at the waist. The neck was super high. The skirt was super exaggerated and incredibly tight. And it was impressive and, like, aggressively feminine, but also as thick as armor. And so that was the kind of thing that I was always looking for for her. She's wearing these suits to project that kind of authority whenever she's in a room with people. Uh, she had two off-duty suits that sort of had looser blazers and looser blouses, and the pants were sort of baggy, and she wears those when she's feeling comfortable or vulnerable or nostalgic. Aiko, we started the opposite way. Uh, she started out in really flowy dresses, like funky layers. She's kind of younger. She has sort of a street style. Uh, so she's always wearing, like, tons of boots, and we have her in some huge sweaters with, like, cowl necks so big that you can't see the bottom of her face. Um, and over the course of the first arc, as she sort of realizes that she is not going to be able to ignore this legacy that she's part of, you see her also starting to put on sort of more structured jackets. The necklines and the sweater starts to become more protective than just showing off. Uh, and we were going more and more toward a silhouette that wasn't exactly like Selena's, but more of a grown-up compliment to it as opposed to a young 25-year-old who has money to burn and nothing in particular to do. Uh, in comparison to both of those, I wanted Stephanie to be the person who shops the Gap, Target, Old Navy, and makes the best out of it. So she is <laughs> she is a mortal among people who are buying Chanel Couture to go to parties because she doesn't have $25,000. So every time Stephanie gets something, I'm throwing stuff out from H&M and J. Crew and being like, okay, this is on sale at J. Crew, so we can use it because she would have gotten it for $17. Well, the, I love it. The they department. specifically only some that are at the sale right now because if it's, like, not sale, like, it's a two cents outfit. Nope. I mean, it has to be on sale. She has, like, one, you know, one exercise outfit to train in, and that's all that she's got. She does not have a lot of money. I, I like the part about um, uh, Eco especially because it reminds me of the, the Boardwalk Empire sequence in the first uh, season when Al Capone goes to that, um, I believe it's a, it's a bar Vitzma, and uh, he's talking to an older um, Jewish man, a rabbi, about his hat. And he says, you should wear a man's hat. And he goes from kind of a newsy cap to a fedora from then on. Um, kind of that sort of growing up um, through your outfits. But that's... Um, yeah. But uh, on, on the topic of fashion, there's there's a name we definitely have to drop here. And that's Kevin Wada, who has um, come onto the, the covers picking up from Jay Lee. Um, how did how did that happen? Was this kind of sort of inevitable considering uh you know his, his background in fashion and everything or Yes, I would like was to say cosmically it was ordained. Yeah. Yes, it was cosmically <laughs> ordained that he would come along. Um, I I love the sort of art deco angles and everything that he's been doing. His cover for forty forty five is amazing and forty six is even better, but I can't tell you about it yet. Um, yes, it it definitely was 
a chance to sort of lean into the fashion angle, which is why in 41 she has that amazing suit. In 42 she has that sort of super noir trench that's happening. Um, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, it's always a lot of fun to talk about clothes, but specifically it's been a lot of fun. You know, one of the big complaints that I voice a lot is how in the vast majority, and I, I understand you probably can't say yes when I say this, but in the vast majority of comics, characters are wearing clothes that they would never wear in real life if they were humans. Um, and so to have the fashion in this book be such a key part of actual storytelling and world building is gold to me because it's just not done enough. So I very much appreciate that. And I do, in a very vague and non-specific sense, know what you mean. Uh, in the the period of my life where I was the most voracious comic book reader, it was probably when I was 11 or 12 and I was reading X-Men. At one point really early on in the... At one point really early on in the X-Men run, Rogue goes on a date uh, and she walks out and I remember looking at the outfit and I was like, I don't know. And this is a book that had Psylocke in like the Psylocke outfit all the time and I had never thought twice about it. And she came out in this date outfit and I'm like, oh! I don't know. Yes, and you were a kid. As a kid, yeah, and as a kid, you know, you knew that that's not what people wear on dates. Like as a child. (laughs) I mean, it was like it was like a long sleeve, long leg lace bodysuit, and I was like, she would be scratching all night. No, no. (laughs) Yes, even even eleven or twelve, I was like, no. Oh, speaking of clothes, so I was looking at the. Aiko's costume, like her specific Catwoman costume uh, today and it's the, in, uh, in the annual where you see her making it. And I thought it looks like the costume that Catwoman of Shanghai wears in the DC cartoon, um, DC Nation cartoon. So I went off to go Google it and actually she's wearing white in that. So I'm not entirely sure. Uh, it was like these animated shorts that they were playing in between the DC Nation shows back when like Young Justice was on the air a few years back and I was a happy person back then. Um, and so, I, I mean, I don't know if you know the series, but I, it's sort of like, it's felt like the specific design around her costume, her, uh, Ico's version of the Catwoman costume, is particularly handmade. And it also kind of looks particularly like something from Asian art. And I can't quite put my finger on that. I don't know to what extent you were involved in the costume design for that, though. Oh, interesting. Um, in her first design, I was absolutely... In the superhero portion of the design, I sort of deferred to both my artists because the superhero comics, and they have been working in them longer than I have. Um, but the first time she goes out, she is cobbling stuff together from her closet, and she has made, like, the saddest little Catwoman hood, and she's wearing her ski goggles, and she has on normal leggings from Hugo Boss uh, and a beautiful leather jacket that I think is also Hugo Boss, but I would have to check. And it has a huge asymmetric zip that covers her neck, and that was the best that she could do for neck protection because she only had about 20 minutes to get ready. And then motorcycle boots. So the first time she goes out, she is wearing a weirdly cobbled-together costume. And by the time we see her in 35 and 36, she sort of refined that a little bit. But for the annual, we wanted something that was energetic but slightly ludicrous. So she has those huge-ass ski goggles, and she was like, nailed it. I'm super anonymous right now. And it's like, well, you are like 23 (laughs) right now. (laughs) <laughs> that's awesome I, I felt like I learned a lot about that character when she did in, in that issue in the annual when she did DIY but it was DIY out of 
you know, Hugo Boss and stuff, I just, I had to laugh a bit because when you, when you <laughs> think about, it was, it was obviously signifying on Batman Returns, right? When she goes into that manic state and she's just throwing stuff around. And I've, I've done some, you know, some kind of, some things riffing off the Michelle Pfeiffer thing and you're pulling out little swatches of, of leather from the, um, from a, from a bin at the, uh, you know, at the low scale, um, sewing shop downtown or something like that. So I thought it was really neat to capture um, the fact that she was doing kind of the classic DIY Catwoman sort of thing, but she was pulling from a very different um, closet than than your typical. <laughs> uh, thank you. Yes, the, the entire point of it was to show the fact that before Catwoman sort of galvanized her, she was not interested in the family business particularly. She had had all the training necessary and she'd gone up against her dad and been like, this is actually not something that I am into whatsoever, so I will just spend money and hang out. And then over the course of the annual, she was like, I should probably do something. But everything she has is like $8,000 leather jacket. <laughs> People in these comic books have spent so much money. The more I talk about how much everything is worth, the more I realize how ridiculously rich every crime family in Gotham must be. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's also an interesting question, like, you know, what are Iko's opportunities in life beyond, like, she could become Catwoman, which is what she's doing. She could become heir to the family. But, like, what are the other, like, what are the choices that she could make, really? Like, she's in a weird position in terms of, like, what she could be allowed to do. You know, when you consider, like, like, you know, JFK came from, like, a family that was, you know, like, doing bootlegging and crime and originally, and he was like, no, I'm going to go and do legitimate politics and be president. Like, there's different things that you can access and buy through having access to that kind of money. So I think it's an interesting question. Well, I think that, I think that, um, I'm trying so hard to avoid all the spoilers here, uh, but yes, I definitely think that by, by taking Stephanie under her wing, she is trying to decide what her options are in terms of what she's going to do in the future. She can't be Catwoman forever, obviously. Like, the position has been filled. Um, The question then becomes, what next? And I think that when Stephanie showed up needing someone to help her, she was like, perfect, this. And I was like, okay, great. What grows out of that? What does that become? Hmm. There's such an an interesting sense of, I guess, class consciousness there developing Catwoman because... Um, you know, Selena has had a long history, but I always kind of, to me, the beginning point of the Batman mythos for considering current or modern comics is Batman Year One. So we have, you know, Selena who came from, you know, not to quote Drake or anything, but came from straight from the bottom um, Mm -hmm. and made her way out from the East End. And and so we've also got um, Stephanie here, who is from very similar background there, but then we have Eco, who was kind of born into this other world, and so I'm always really, I, I, I love that one interaction that she has with Bruce as Batman, um, because he doesn't understand how similar the two of them are. That that they, from their starting point as vigilantes, are more similar um, to each other than either one is with Selina. Wow. <laughs> um, yes, I cannot say too much about that for obvious reasons, but yes, that is 100% legitimate. 
And one of the things about Selena that I am actually sorry I have not had more page space for, and this is the kind of thing that I think is sort of more annual fodder than it is having time when you only have 20 pages in an issue, uh, is the fact that one of the reasons that she took up this mantle of a family that clearly has every problem in the world and, like, everything is stacked against it, but it has all this power, is that she wanted to use it to sort of rebuild the parts of Gotham that fell apart during Batman Eternal. Uh, and you see, I think, glimpses of it here and there, but, of course, you're trying to keep a tighter focus. But my headcanon for this, of course, is that she has spent a lot of time sort of paying money to rebuild community centers and, like, restaffing schools and doing all this kind of stuff and sort of trying to channel that mob money into rebuilding neighborhoods for the people who live in them. Um, specifically because she came from the bottom. She knows what it's like to feel like you have no options. And I think that she doesn't want a Gotham where people feel like they don't have options. Uh, and I'm in a position where she feels like she doesn't have options. Well, it's really mm-hmm. interesting because we, we kind of saw a literal, like, I, I don't know if I should say literal, but a kind of a more direct or unmitigated version of that in Brubaker's run when she mm-hmm. funded the Leslie Tompkins uh, Community Center by literally just stealing money from... Uh, those same mob families, of course, Black Mask turned out to be the big mastermind behind who, you know, who was the root of of power and influence in that particular area. So that's one of the things that's been really interesting is that Selena, to me, is still doing a lot of the same things that she had done in a more kind of a Robin Hood sense than trying to infiltrate um, an existing power structure the way that she has um, the Mafia, because even if you go back to um, Batman Year One, when she first starts her activities, it's against these same crime families that there's been, you know, a, a tension between her and them because they were, um, you know, the, their main targets were her people. The, this, this was an organization that she was kind of as diametrically opposed to as... Um, Batman is to the Joker, right? They're these kind of two fundamentally different forces in Gotham. So I think the really interesting tension is to what extent can she infiltrate that structure that she's been on the outside of trying to fight from the inside? Um, and there's there's a lot of, I think, interesting parallels with sort of fan and even creator engagement uh, with these properties that come along with that that how much does trying to infiltrate a structure change you? I mean, I agree 100%. And the answer is, it always does. You come in with the best intentions possible, but if you come into a corrupt system, it does change you. And we've seen some of that, and I think we're not done. Hmm. That's interesting. You know, I just would say as an aside to anyone listening that I have read nothing from Batman Eternal, and if you have, like, the standard comic book reader's willingness to just roll with the fact that there's stuff that you're not going to know with, this book is totally approachable. You're not going to be like, what? You know, so I, I think that's important and appreciated since, you know, you can't really assume everybody knows everything. Um I think that it's a the comics like a, you know like from the beginning of the arc really is at a place where just so long as you have the basics of the Batman world in your mind, you'll 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 be able to understand it. So 
Yeah, I, I second that. I jumped into 35 um, with very little kind of foreknowledge of what kind of was going on because when I came onto it, I had just started my new reviewing job and it was like, okay, you're covering DC Comics, pick like, you know, five, six titles. And I was kind of going through solicits. Oh, Catwoman, let's see what's going on here. And I hit 35 just at the right time. So it it really is like if you, because the first trade just came out last week, right? Correct. Yeah, you can jump onto that. And even if you only know Catwoman through Michelle Pfeiffer or whatnot, if, if you haven't read Batman Year One, please do yourself a favor. Um, <laughs> or seeing the cartoon, <laughs> either or both, please, especially since, you know, Brian Cranston plays Jim Gordon and Eliza Dushku is Selena in the cartoon. But even if you don't have those reference points, I think everybody to a certain extent knows who Selena Kyle is. If you want to see, um, I would say my elevator pitch for this run is if you want to see like a Showtime or an HBO style um series out of Catwoman where she's kind of engaging in those sort of, um, you know, sexy criminal underbelly type of world, then this is a really easy sell. And no matter what your immediate background in the Batman mythos is. I'm taking notes. Hmm. Oh, you know, we didn't at all talk about, like, having the character, you know, having her kiss with Aiko and, like, the significance of having her, you know, be bisexual within the story. And I know that that's a topic that a lot of us care a lot about. So I wanted to sort of bring that out and get us some thoughts about, um, you know, your, your choices in that direction and what it means to you. I'm sorry, go one more time. You were breaking up? Oh, no, sorry. Um, is this better? Yes, much better. Thank you. Okay, great. So I, I was asking that um, I wanted to make sure we talked a bit about um, you know Selena's kiss with Ico and you know ha- having you know Selena have a romantic you know, tension that's acknowledged by like everybody in the room, the writers and the fans, <laughs> um, <laughs> with a woman uh, being significant. Um, and I sort of wanted to get some thoughts from you about that decision and going in that direction and. Um, you know, what, what are your feelings about the significance of doing it? Because it was a really big deal. I think that pretty much the moment that Selena saw Aiko dress as Catwoman across the balcony and put two and two together in 36, you realize that there's sort of an intimacy to that dynamic that they're going to have to acknowledge sooner or later. If for no other reason than Selena is totally isolated in this situation, and there's someone there who is not only a mirror of her, but seems like a mirror that understands her. And I think that when you're in a situation where there's no one you can confide in, and, and at that point, even Batman basically doesn't want anything to do with her. Um, here comes Ego, who is smart, who has sort of enough issues in darkness to be really interesting to Selena, and presents herself as an equal, like straight up as an equal, I am also Catwoman. What are you going to do about it? And I think that it was it was equal parts challenge and sort of a confidant. Um, and so for me, the intimacy totally makes sense. Um, and I think their dynamic. I mean, I hope their dynamic uh, has sort of become the cleanest thing going on 
for Selena in a really dirty time, if that makes sense. Mm. I'm trying to avoid (laughs) stars. Um, do you think that, like, there's, you know, some identification that she has, like, as being queer, or is it a something that's coming out of specifics of the situation that she's in right now with her? That's an interesting question. Um, and it's not one that I'm sure any particular writer can answer about a character who's been around for so long. Um I have my own. I put the spin on it, it being lately. I would say lately. I was just saying, I was just saying, I was just saying, yeah. I think she's been sort of around for a long time. Um, going going back 75 years to those oldest comic books was hilarious. Like some of the subtext in those comic books was out of control. Um, I think that representation is incredibly important. I think that for a character like this, it comes as sort of... It's it's hard to say when you're the person that that has come on for such a short time for a character who's been around for so long. Um, I think for this character, it is something organic for her to be romantically open. I think that for her, this is not a particularly big deal. I know that that for some people who were very angry about it, it was a very big deal. Um, and it never, it never struck me that way. It never struck me as something that would throw her for a loop or seem unusual or be a barrier to her having this sort of really emotionally intense dynamic. It it seems like, um, and I'm not sure exactly what the best way to go about this or how much, how, what kind of a clear answer can happen, but it seems to me like right now at DC, at, at almost as, I would say as a whole, seems to be very open to these kind of storylines because we've we've got um, Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy, that's been going on. That went on for months mm-hmm. before <laughs> they could finally pin down Paul Miotti and Con- well, with, sorry, within the current solo series, yes, I know the subtext has been there in a different way, but it, it kind of seems like there's um, there's a lot going on at DC around this, um, and I guess maybe the easiest way to ask is correct me if I'm wrong here, but it kind of seems like there's when these issues come up, there's kind of a, a thumbs up as opposed to there being some kind of well what can we do here? Because from what you're saying is that it, it aroused, it rose um, organically from what your position on the character was, that this is all just kind of stuff that people want to do that is kind of A+. plus. I mean, I think it's so hard, it's so hard not to cast a little shade here. I think that DC is definitely trying to, sort of enter a new era of being open, of listening to its fans, of making room for new stories. And you're seeing that in Midnighter. You're seeing that in Harley Quinn. Um, I think it's really exciting. And I like the fact that, especially in books like Midnighter, 
it's coming organically as part of the character and it's not the point of the book, which I think is nice. Um, I think it's a level of representation that's like, here is an LGBT person and they just kind of exist and there's not a lot of points. And it's like, well, I would like a character to be dynamic and to have depth and to have hobbies and interests. Who has a dog? Who has a dog? Oh, that that's that's Sophie the Chihuahua, I believe, in the background. That's my roommate. Dog. Uh, sorry, I'm such a dog fiend, and I've lived in New York for a million years in a tiny apartment, and they won't let me have one. And so I'm like, become that crazy dog lady who every time she sees a dog goes, Poppy! Aww. Yeah, well, I, I live in the suburbs of Vancouver, so it's uh, it's either apartment <laughs> it's, it's either apartment dogs or you have to move all the the way out here to be able to own a dog. So, um, yeah, she's she's sadly just adjusting to life as the only dog because her, uh, her big sister, Pitbull, got put down recently. So, sorry Aww. she's uh, so upset right now. Yeah. I'm so sorry to hear that. You know, that brings me to a question, actually. I don't think there's that many actual cats and catwomen right now. <laughs> Is this because you're a dog person? Okay. <laughs> my friend Janine Schaefer, who is obsessed with cats, uh, has asked me the same question and accused me of exactly the same thing. At some point, I had to tell Mark, just keep it as a standing art note. If there should be more cats in the frame, by all means, put as many cats as you want. Um, <laughs> because, of course, you know, at some point, you're you're trying to tell, like, a super grounded story, whatever, whatever, and at some point, you kind of forget that, like, she's Catwoman and essentially has cat telepathy, and every time she goes onto a roof, there should be 800 cats waiting, like, waiting for the hello. Um, so, yes, I am guilty of not hating cats, but forgetting every so often that every time she goes onto a roof, of course there would be a cat waiting for her. Like, of course there well, would be. That was a, a, was that issue 39 or 40 that she ends the issue surrounded by cats on the rooftop there? <laughs> That was 39, and I remembered that That's time. Right. I was like, she is fucking yeah. surrounded by cats. There are so many cats, you can't even walk. But that that was such a cool moment because, you know, Selena's never really had a clean distinction between I'm Selena Kyle versus I'm Catwoman. If she had, any time that she's had that socialite Selena Kyle thing, it was very much a fabrication to get her into certain circles, to get her certain items. Um but it was really interesting how this one kind of created a dichotomy between Selena Kyle as a member of the Calabrese family and um, and her as Catwoman, how she kind of set Catwoman aside for a time. And you saw that in, in Jay Lee's covers. Was there, what was the conversation around that distinction? Was he just kind of riffing on whatever or? No, I think that, I mean, first of all, that is a much better take on the cat thing than anything I said. So if this was not live, we would just erase <laughs> everything that I said and start with yours. Um, but no, I think that there's definitely something to be said for that's super grounded. You know, there's cops and, like, people are double-crossing each other and Selena's doing some really gritty stuff. And she's trying to keep Catwoman out of her life. Um, and if you see the roof of her house that Gary Brown had drawn, there's always like this huge glass wall around it so she can see everything without participating in it, which I thought was a beautiful sort of visual summation of what she's dealing with. Um, but by the time we hit 39, she was sort of taking to the rooftops a little bit more. She had a little bit more freedom. And with that comes the ability to sort of bring back the cat woman side of her. Um, so, yeah, there were definitely more paths. And 
Jay's genius with all his own, but if he picked up on that, then that is awesome. I just can't take credit for it. He gets all the credit. <laughs> nice. I've got a question. I've been fairly quiet, but I've been twittering, uh, <laughs> tweeting out. So, uh, you know, clearly there's Cena also on the television show as well, um, with a lot of people can maybe coming in on that way. Uh, you know, is that kind of weighing in your mind at all that there's two high profile versions of Selena out there right now? That is a very good question. Um, and of course, it is a weird intersection of TV and comics to be writing a comic for a company that has a TV show out. And sometimes you'd like to talk about it, and sometimes you're not sure if you should. Um, <laughs> I think the way that they're handling, I mean, come on. There are some things about Gotham that I have questions about that I would like to have, you know, I would like to put some questions answered about how Gotham's going. But <laughs> none of those questions are about Selena, who I think is actually being handled really well. Um, I love Cameron Zykendover. She has that sort of Michelle Pfeiffer thing. She's very good at being able to show us hurt without giving anything away to the people around her, which, of course, is a, a quality that I cherish in my Selena Kyle. Um, and I think they're handling her really, really well. Like, she has that scrappiness. She's sort of learning as she goes along if there's more than one way to get what you want. She's trying to take everything in and, and manipulate everything to her own advantage, but sometimes she runs up against her own sort of... runs violently into her own conscience and can't quite can't quite cross past the gray. So, like, all of that I love. Um, I even love that scene with, like, poor, super sad Barbara where Barbara was trying to play with her like she was a dress-up doll, and it was the saddest thing in the entire world. Aww. But, like, it was, oh, my gosh, it was so sad. But even then, like, Selena acquitted herself incredibly well, and I'm very happy about how that show was handling it so far. How do you rank the film and TV, Catwoman, like, in terms of what you, not necessarily in writing the Ooh. character, but kind of what you pulled out of each of them on a, on a personal level? Um, number one is Eartha Kitt. Always. Always Eartha Kitt. Nice. <laughs> the best one. Um, because she has the wry humor, the intelligence, and that sort of undercurrent of anger that made her vaguely dangerous in a show that was not particularly concerned with making anybody dangerous. And I thought that that was such a great sort of towing the line because she never, she never felt like she was not in on the joke but she also felt like she was bringing something a little bit sharper, a little bit edgier. And, like, I never get tired of watching her in that role. I think she was amazing. Um, number two, Michelle Pfeiffer. And I know that there is a lot of a lot of controversy that I did not know existed sort of before I started researching, but there is a lot of controversy about her origin story in that movie um, because it was vaguely supernatural and, and off-brand. I guess, some people feel. I am not one of those people at all. Um, I think that her arc in that movie is one of the most concise superhero trilogies, and it happens over the course of a single movie where she is a supporting character. But it's so tightly put together that you get that entire arc. You get all three acts of her life, including the tragedy that comes upon her because she is who she is. Um, 
and not in a way that blames her, but in a way that makes it feel sort of mystic. And I think that that's just fantastic. And she's so sharp and she's so sarcastic and she has that sort of 1930s take no shit. And like, she was just great. I have seen that movie a bajillion times and I'm, again, I never get tired of it. Mm. Uh, number three. Okay, I'm going to round up my number three with Halle Berry. Because in terms of taking something away from the depiction of the character into my own work, she is really useful in that respect. Um, and it's such a terrible movie, but you can see what they were trying to do. And I think it's very interesting to look at the fact that on paper, this is a vaguely good Catwoman movie. This is a Catwoman movie that does not rely on Batman for her origin story or any of her motivations. That's very interesting. Uh, her nemesis is a woman who owns a vast corporate empire. That is very interesting. You know, she sort of has a torture relationship with a cop who has to decide whether or not he is willing to imprison her, and, like, that is very interesting, and some of that dynamic is even seen reflected in the comics a little bit. So on paper, a lot of that movie was going to work. And then you get the feeling that people just kept adding and adding and adding until what you ended up with was what actually happened in Catwoman. Um, So I think, like, if for no other reason, then it's a very interesting cautionary tale. It is still a really valuable iteration of the character. What I do not appreciate about Catwoman is it somehow became the scapegoat for everybody to point to and say, well, superheroine movies don't make any money. They're all terrible. Look at Catwoman. It's like, that's not fair. That's not fair. Yeah, that was my concern, you know, coming out of this, you know, Fantastic Four weekend. Uh, you know, our review on record policy was that the movie was bad. That's what I've been seeing everywhere. And I'm positive that the studios, not the critics, but the studios take away from this will be that you shouldn't ever do cross-racial casting of black people. Like, the studios will always take the wrong message out of any commercial failure, and they will never take the correct message. You're just to support better art. So that's that's the... Um, the haunting, dreading feeling that I've had after hearing how bad Fantastic Four was this weekend. And because that's, you know, I'm basing that on what we heard coming out of Catwoman, right? The same thing you were pointing to. It's such a shame. Like, there's so much money riding on all of these movies. There is so much pop culture currency riding on each of these movies that on some level, on a level that sometimes I am not happy to, like, admit that I understand, I do understand. I understand that if something fails at the box office, you look for the easiest reason, the easiest thing that you can cut out next time so that you can try again the same way. Um, My first job when I came to New York was working for an event planner, and that is how you determined what did and didn't work in terms of a load-in. You know, if everything Mm -hmm. in the load-in worked, but one vendor was two hours late and then we couldn't get anybody into the bay in time, and then all the flowers were wilted by the time they got there, and then 18 people got fired... You go with a different florist next time. You don't use that, you know, you, gardenias don't work. You have to keep, I think gardenias? Yes. They were gardenias and you had to keep them in a refrigerated truck. And if a refrigerated truck idles for two hours, the air conditioning goes off and they wilt and everything is ruined. So you don't use gardenias anymore. Like, easy say. But I don't think you can apply that to something that has as many moving parts as movies or TV. Like, it just doesn't scan the same way. Um, at the same time, Movies are a business. So it is the job of people for whom movies are a business to sit down and say, okay, their gardenias wilted, we're never using gardenias again, when the answer is 
schedule them so that they don't have to idle for two hours. Um, that was way more about event planning than anybody needed to know. I am so sorry. <laughs> no, but it's a good metaphor. It's a really good metaphor. I, ha- I think it's a great way of describing it. And maybe it's because I've also dealt with events. So I actually understand what you're talking about, but no, I think it's a good... Uh, good, okay. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yes, so Catwoman does poorly, and instead of looking at it and say, okay, we tried to stray so far from the initial character of the comic book that there was nothing left for anybody to hold on to, and we didn't do a radical enough reimagining ever for them to hold on to anything else. Let's not do that again. They were like, chick, man. And it's like, no, that's not, no, no, that's not, don't, no, that's not, that's not the, that's not the message. Um, and it's disheartening to see it, and it happens all the time. And now it's happening with Fantastic Four, which I still have to yeah. get up the nerves to see. Like, I have not had the it's nerves bad. to see it. It's bad. Like, like, I Frankenstein bad, or like I am clawing my own upper arms, wishing for an escape bad. It's so. It's not as everyone else says. Uh, my take was very bored. You can see brilliance in like order, and then it goes. There's like really a point where it goes. It's amazing. It in a film like this, where it's just like it just completely goes in this one direction, you're like, all right, that's the point that things just completely fell apart. Um, which is no, pretty, it's worse. pretty, yeah. Uh, that's worse it's than fascinating. It's like uniformly sucky. That's terrible. That's yep. terrible. Yeah. All right, well then I'm going to, I'm going to go see it and I will just <laughs> brace myself. And, and <laughs> the audience was laughing at points that were not supposed to be humorous. So I think oh, no. that's the other thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. What well, for Supergirl? I go, oh, if you haven't seen the pilot, it's amazing. I'm like, yeah, I'm all about that show. Sorry, I'm yeah, super excited it, for it. Yeah, because it, it kind of tries to hit some of those same notes that Fantastic Four could have, right? And being having a, you know, a stronger female presence to begin with and it being starred from, starting from Supergirl and then going the, what should be completely uncontroversial route of trying for an actually attractive Jimmy Olsen for once, um, uh-huh. which, which is an interesting idea. So, I mean, I, I think hopefully there's been, a, there were enough good ideas or well-executed ideas in the pipeline that, um, that, you know, Fantastic Four won't thrash things too bad. But I think something that, one of the things you got to learn about Hollywood right now is that if, if the right type of person has a modest hit, they're going to hand them the keys to the castle and say, go, go ape, you know, go ape turds, right? It's, and we kind of <laughs> saw that that just didn't work because, you know, whether it was, the, the dogs, you know, causing $100,000 worth of damage or, or what, you've got, you've got to be careful who you give these projects to. And there's, I think, a, a need for new voices to, to bring these stories to life rather than looking at, well, who had a modest hit, let's bring them in, in, in terms of let's groom better voices for something like that, I think. So clearly, I missed a story about dogs or something like that, so I, I need to do a little Googling. Well, because this is Catwoman, we, we have to blame everything on dogs, but there was a story coming up <laughs> that, that, that the director's dog, he had a, supposedly had a bunch of dogs um, 
that he had with him on set that caused $100,000 worth of damage to a, a hotel room. Um, yeah. How do you... How? It, what the type of hotel this is. What the type of hotel it probably was, I could see it because I know... I, I heard firsthand where the people shooting Deadpool were staying here in town, and I could... Yeah, it wouldn't be that hard. Okay. Damn. All right. Fair enough. Clearly, this is a life that I'm not rolling in. Uh, we actually have a question from Twitter. Um, so the question from Clark, just a random total person. Uh, so he, and this is a great one, you've already used the stiletto heel as a weapon in Catwoman Volume 1. What's your surprise weapon for Volume 2? There is one, and I can't tell you what it is. Oh. Um, but there will be one, so you should keep an eye out. I, I can't tell you. It's a spoiler. Okay. <laughs> um, but yes, it is an unlikely weapon that becomes part of the character's identity in the same way that Catwoman put on super pointy stilettos for a meeting with someone who underestimated her and then used it to pin one of his henchmen's hands to the wall. Because... Oh! Yes. Because Selena Kyle. Um... I want to go back and talk about Hollywood really quickly because I think that you are absolutely correct about the case of the kingdom thing. The pattern that emerges is incredibly interesting in that they keep picking up people who have done sort of more meta or cleverer or really insightful takes on the tropes that are used in superhero movies. So you have like Edgar Wright, um, Ava DuVernay, like you have people who have sort of put their own stylistic stamp on tropes that you see often in superhero movies. So movies about honor and sacrifice or movies about sort of jerks coming around at the last second and like battling supernatural evil and it's hilarious and awesome. And they, they're all excellent choices in that way to do big superhero movies. But the formula for a big superhero movie is at this point so fixed that it takes away everything that made them stylish, idiosyncratic and interesting. And a huge problem yeah. with the superhero film complex is that thing where you take someone who has an amazing voice and then ask them not to use it now. It's like, well, I don't know what you're going to do. Well, and that's kind of a bizarre evolution to me because when I looked at like Marvel's, I guess what we would have to call phase one in hindsight, is that it kind of flowered out of Guillermo del Toro's um, Blade Two. Because at that point, they judged the stakes to be so low that they gave it to this up-and-coming idiosyncratic director and said, kind of, you know, do your thing. So you see a lot of the same themes and, and stuff that he would do uh, in his other films, and stuff that goes back to the mimic, and you still see in Pacific Rim the whole, like, you know, viral dis- distribution of this new invasive mm-hmm. species and that kind of stuff. Um, and, and it was like, wow, this blew the lid off. It was a weird B-movie, but it set up, and then, okay, well, let's get the guy who did Swingers to make Iron Man because that's, you know, Tony Stark's inner child mentality, right? And, and right. so you get, you get that, and you're like, wow. But, and then somehow along the way, it, it ends up that you alienate Edgar Wright from, uh, from Ant-Man. And that's just kind of like, wow. So, I mean, I, I guess maybe there needs to be kind of a, um, a renewal of the vows there and kind of a re-examination because there's been great success in superhero movies to bring idiosyncratic talents 
um, and let them do their thing and create amazing things. Because I think there was a guy who did a Batman movie that brought Prince on to do a score once. Is that correct? <laughs> Yay. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that, that showed up in the Edgar Wright movie too somewhere. There's an amazing comic strip by Keith Hinch, I want to say, who argued that actually Prince had already made the soundtrack to Batman before he was called by Tim Burton because Prince is Batman and therefore was prepared for all eventualities. <laughs> it's an amazing – it's on my Tumblr if anybody wants to dig for it. It's amazing. That is amazing. I mean, it's a sound argument that Prince is, in fact, Batman. They're eccentric billionaires. They hang out at night. They wear capes. They're fabulous. I don't – I don't know that um, that Dave Chappelle has played Batman at basketball yet, though. So someone's gonna have to get on that one. He could. He could. He would be Yeah, if if Snyder's listening, he needs to get on that. Dave Chappelle yeah. basketball next issue. <laughs> oh, uh, this is kind of a completely different question, but I know that you have been a guest on some of my favorite science fiction and fantasy podcasts, like. Podcastle, and um, not I guess your stories have been read on that Podcastle and um, uh, Skate Pod, and I was wondering if you had thoughts about like the role of podcast fiction and podcasts in promoting genre entertainment. That is like, a really good question. Um, I actually process information a lot better visually, so it is a very different experience for me to actually sit down and listen to a story, but with the right narrator, I find that it becomes a completely different experience. Um, it's sort of a more meditative experience, if that makes sense. Like, not every story, obviously. Um, but for me, the best podcasted stories offer an opportunity to sort of let the story unfold on its own terms and let the story sort of surround you and wash over you as opposed to you being an active reader in the story. And I think it can lead to very different interpretations of the same story, but in a way that is really interesting and sort of enriches the core text, if that makes sense. Core text sounds so college, I'm sorry. Um, That's okay, we do that here. (laughs) (laughs) It has been said before on this this podcast. Okay, good. but yes, I think that for those who really prefer fiction to be read to them and process things more that way than on a screen reading them, it's a really great experience. Uh, there's been a couple of stories where the narrator has completely made a difference for me from thinking, what a good story, to being totally punched in the chest emotionally. Um, and there are a couple of great readers for in, in specific magazines like Kate Baker for Clark's World who does really nice stuff and sort of becomes the voice that you trust. And, you know, every week she has a slightly different cadence to go with every story, but it's the familiarity of the voice, and so it sort of becomes quite literally a voice of the publication. Um, I am still struggling to get comfortable with stories that are being read out loud to me, and I don't know why, because... It sounds like something I would love. Um, But I do know people who love it, and I think that it's 
a really great way to reach a wider audience who is not going to sit down and scroll through a bunch of stories online, but is more than willing to put on a podcast while they're doing something and sort of let the story happen. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly how I started in listening to them. I um, wasn't getting enough fiction read, and I have a commute. There you go. You know? <laughs> and, like, the, the podcastle and um, Escape Pod are, like, my main vector for re- getting fiction that's not a comic book, basically. So Those are good choices. They have a really good sort of institutional voice. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Who- who would be the narrator to to the current Catwoman comic then? If you were, because Mark Wade had had a similar thing get done for Daredevil, um, kind of a read out of the descriptions of everything for for blind readers of Daredevil. But I guess if there was some kind of an audio book to Catwoman, who who would be voicing that? Oh no, who would be voicing that? Um, Rachel Weiss, Kate Blanchett. Okay, sure. We're going to aim for the moon. Rachel Weiss or Rachel Kate Blanchett? <laughs> I like it. Well, Kate Blanchett has played Queen Elizabeth, so there you go. <laughs> All right, here. Dear Kate, love your work. Quick question. Catwoman? Thanks. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like it. Um, do you have any other projects that you're working on right now that you want folks to know about or that you'd be interested in sharing with us? Great question. Um, I am currently one of the team working on Batman and Robin Eternal. Uh, another one of those projects that I am super excited about and currently can say nothing about because this is the nature of comics. But it has been a blast. Uh, I am really looking forward to sort of the moment that, that Everybody gets to realize what the story is about and the story. Uh, it has been really exciting and even more collaborative than a normal comic, of course, because a normal comic you have your team. Uh, this one had a two-day writer's room that was sitting down and working everything out. And it was my first time in a writer's room for that specific purpose and not a general sort of, you know, this is the status of everybody's that books and this is what we're going to do and we could try this, we could try that. This one was really intensive, like world building and hitting emotional beats and it was really great. Um, so I am super excited about that. And then I have a couple of other pitches that I am working up for creator-owned stuff that I don't want to talk about them now because they're very new and I don't know. Hopefully I'll have something to announce in the not too far future. Um, well, that's Batman great. and Robin. <laughs> yeah. Is is Batman and Robin where Cassandra Kane is returning to? Yes. Yeah, so that's going to be interesting. That's, oh uh, wow. Yeah, wow. The, and it seems like almost everybody is back now. I mean, in terms of who was on my shopping list to see back, because we've got Renee Montoya's in, in Detective Comics. Um, Stephanie's in, in Catwoman now. We're going to see Cassandra Kane coming soon. There's a lot of a lot of really exciting re-debuts lately. I am definitely excited about this one. It's going to be good. Yeah, people have been really eager for that to happen again. Can I, this is a question. 
Yes, and necessary, like really freaking necessary. Um, one question that I would pose for, in case people are as uninformed as I am, which some may be, but maybe others are not, what is the role of the eternal, like, series within the Batman comics family? Like, I'm not really clear on what that is, because I just haven't been reading anything that was Batman until I picked up this and then Grayson recently. Uh, that is an excellent question, and I feel like this is a question that should be asked by an editor who is higher up on the decision-making process than I am. Um, as far as I know, it is sort of the all-star team that forms in the summer. Um, so, like, you have you know, you have all of the individual athletes, and then they get together, and it's like the fucking Olympics. Um, and it's a chance to really because the pacing is weekly, it's a chance to really get in there and offer up a combination of really intense, fast action and the kind of plot that would lose people if it went on once a month for six or eight months and sort of Hmm. keep the complexity because you're getting new story every week. Um, For me, some of the feel of Batman and Robin Eternal has been, and like in a really great way, sort of the black and white serials of the 30s, if that makes sense, because you're always going to see one when you go to the movie, and if you miss one, you can sort of pick up on what's happening from the context around it, and there's this sense of, like, everybody's together having a fantastic time. Um, which I know is not, is not a very good, uh, in terms of how it affects the bat, the bat world answer, but in terms of what it's fulfilling... <laughs> Uh, in terms of what it's fulfilling within the Bat group, uh, sort of Mark Doyle's philosophy is a, a Bat book for every reader. So we have you know, crime books and young adult books and sort of a supernatural book, and we have a straight-up detective book, and we have Batman. Um, mm-hmm. And so for me, the, the Eternals sort of still that golden age feeling of something happening really fast and everyone's sort of caught up in this ride and it's sort of a giddy feeling. Um, but it also gives you a chance to bring characters together who wouldn't otherwise be able to spend this much time together and really sort of have their characters bang up against each other and sort of see the growth that comes out of that and examine the themes of everything that's happening. That's uh, really helpful. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> um... So yes, and, and bringing all the Robins together in Robin Eternal, I think it's going to be a really interesting sort of experiment in everybody's identity exploration, because of course you have all of these Robins coming together, but, you know, they don't all get along. Like, stuff's going to happen. Stuff's going to happen. I probably can't say anything else. Mm-hmm. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> well, we do, know, we do know there's something called Robin War happening. Um so that yeah, oh. that 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 tells us at least enough that they're not going to be all getting together <laughs> nicely. But uh, I would anyone who who's interested in this thread, you should definitely be picking up um, uh, Damian Wayne's current book that uh, that Patrick Gleason is um, is writing and drawing. It's it's a lot of fun. I mean, I, I think it's a little bit. If anything, it's a little bit heavy for what I would like to see from a Damien book. Cause I'd, hmm. I'd like to get the idea back of, of the kids' superheroes being more easily read by kids, but anyone who enjoyed Grant Morrison's Batman work 
should definitely be looking at it because the art is so psychedelic and the character beats on Damien are fantastic. But I think it's, it's going to tell us that and We Are Robin, I think, is probably going to be charting the best course that we can towards seeing what's going to be happening next, maybe, at least in terms hmm. of the character beats. But uh, that's that's an intriguing book. It only has two issues out so far, so it's still easy to jump in on. But if, if you liked Damien um, and for kind of the campier aspects that he had when Morrison first introduced him uh, in a good act like um, adventure series that had some serious heart to it, not a bad pick. Noted. Oh, so, Jeremy, what are comics that we should be reading that are by like independent or like, you know, creator or things like that that you would endorse and say we should be picking up? Okay, you broke up a little bit in the middle. Are you asking for comics that I think everybody should be reading? Yes. That we don't know about. I mean, like not like not not DC. Like I'm talking about um, in, any other any indies you recommend, creator own books, things like that. I mean, I'm reading you guys to get recommendations. Like I have a pull stack at Forbidden Planet that's 100 feet tall. Um, <laughs> I'm reading Gem and the Holograms, and I think it's amazing. Yes. Right? Gem and the Holograms. Yeah, doing? I'm doing a lot of, like, homework, so I'm still catching up on Wicked and the Divine and Saga and all the ones that you're, like, really supposed to be checking out. Um, I've just picked up the first couple of issues of Infinite Loop, which so far seems very cute. I love her style. Um, mm-hmm. And some image books that I'm looking forward to include... Uh, Steve Orlando is doing Virgil, which I think could be interesting. He's going to be on our podcast on Thursday for a very special edition of our podcast to talk about Virgil. Well, there you go. Okay, then I'm going to tune in because he told me nothing nothing else about it. He's like, no, you can wait. You can wait and listen. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> I've, I've gotten a glimpse at it. It's it's really good. If you're, if you're enjoying Midnighter, I mean, it's, it's a very different thing. For Midnighter, of course, but if there's certain itches that it scratches for the readership, but it's it's very much its own thing. But it, it's it's Steve Orlando for sure. It's uh, it's something that the comics need in that in that um, publisher in particular. It's one of the gaps in their current initiative that this is really going to fill. It yeah. And this is Image. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, what else? Oh, I just picked up the first couple. I hope Becky doesn't listen to this. She's going to be mad. But I just picked up the first couple of Southern Frost. So I haven't read that yet, but I am looking forward to it. Good series. Very, very good series. Yeah, Creepy just, and awesome. They just got their tattoos, didn't they? Becky and, and Andy, I think, just got their, like, Southern Cross tattoos. Did they? Yeah, I think, uh, if, I, if those were fresh pictures, I saw, yeah, they got their, their team Southern Cross. Uh, I mean, I guess you can't say nerds about everybody who works in comics, but like nerds, and I say it with love, nerds. <laughs> um, in terms of DC books, though, my two favorites right now on style alone, I think, are Constantine and Black Canary, like obviously. Yeah, love those. Because both of those books just look so good. Um, but yes, I am trying to catch up on years that I missed because in my in my late preteens, around 12 or 13, I 
ran out of money. Literally, my allowance ran out because it was one of the things where the X-Men go to the apocalypse planet and it was crossover with X-Force and Excalibur and everything else, and I was only like 12. I didn't have that kind of money. Um, and then I sort of stopped reading for a while because, I mean, for the same reason a lot of women stopped reading comics, that feeling that you're not the target audience, that they're not for you. Uh-huh. Um, and it is a very exciting time to be coming back into comics because there's so many creators and there's so many publishers out there that are trying to push back against that sort of actively. So it's a nice time to become the best. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We've got a f- to that initial question from Twitter. Uh, so the comment is from Clark. He really doesn't know what the new weapon is, the surprise weapon. And I should ask you if it's claws. And I'm supposed to not take no for an answer, insisting that it's claws. Insist that it's claws. Uh, I mean, certainly it's claws. There are no fewer than three jewelers who are currently on the Bergdorf Goodman website who have put out buckle rings that have claws on them, each of which is like $6,000. And while I would never, I have been tempted. Like $6,000 diamond claws are sort of amazing. Um, uh, so, Selena obviously is more practical when it comes to her weaponry, but like just passing by those amazing diamond studded claws, you you stop and think about it. You're like, I mean, maybe, like maybe she's trying really hard to make a point while she's fighting, and she's like, this claw, this diamond claw. Uh, well, there noir. Again. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what what the full noir jewelry DC crossover was a couple of years ago. But I think there might have been a like a single claw ring that was part of that that line to do with Catwoman because you had those those rings that were like like half a Gotham City skyscraper. It was like a two finger ring, and there was a bunch of them. I can't remember if there was a claw one or not though. There should be. If there isn't, we should make one. Because they had like, the big like the the Wonder Woman cuff and and like a, a bat logo two finger ring. There was some wild stuff there, but. I don't know if I, my imagination has manufactured a, a, a Catwoman claw ring if it actually existed. I don't remember that one from that collection. So we'll have to make it become real. Right? Like, it's not too late. You get a two-finger ring and it's the face of the cat and the two ears are sharpened in the claws. So it's sort of like brass knuckles. I mean, mm-hmm. right? Done. Done. That would be amazing. Well, we I we have mentioned we did mention so that they needed times. to do that we mentioned on our previous show that uh, they needed to do makeup for Gem of the Holograms, and now this is happening. And so now we're saying they need to do this for jewelry, which means it will happen. Yeah, just throwing it out there. Are they doing Gem of the happen. Holograms makeup? Yes, with yeah. Manic Panic. Um, Manic Panic. What? Yeah, yeah I, I think it's tied into limited. the movie though. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. We don't get to have any nice merch from the cartoon, from the (laughs) comic. But yes, there's going to be Manic Panic for, like, the movie, which makes sense, because watching Jim as a kid is why I probably started dyeing my hair Manic Panic when I was in junior high. (laughs) And then I think that there's going to be a Sephora line, too. But it's true. That's all for the movie, but it's not from comics. The Jim and the Holograms cartoon was one of the first times I realized how messed up a narrative could get, because I was like, what, six? I was a tiny <laughs> child. 
and it's Jem and Jerrica, and they are each trying to get Rio to date them. And I'm like, that is entrapment, and that is wrong. I was way too young to spell or know what entrapment was, but, like, that, that was not okay. That was messed up. Yeah, the comics have done a really good job of addressing that by making that, like, not be the issue yeah. at all. Um, yeah, I really like how resolved that. I agree. <laughs> but every time I think about the cartoon, I don't know. Like, it was amazing, but she always had angsty songs about deception and betrayal, and it's like, well, whose fault is that? <laughs> it's a weird thing. Totally. It's a weird thing. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I was always stunned by how quickly things escalated. I mean, I... I came into the comedy because I've, I've I've been a Sophie Campbell fan for a decade, literally. But so I was like, okay, she's drawing cool rock star designs. It's that cartoon. So I watched a bunch of Netflix, and it escalated into explosions and kidnappings, and like Pizzazz was like Pizzazz she was driven. Pizzazz has yeah. yeah, she has a lot of ambition, but like, wasn't she the one that grabbed the bulldozer and tried to run over everybody? Yeah, and, like, she's the like pilot. Like, everything she does is attempted manslaughter, basically. Uh, what else did she do? She locked Asia in, like, the cargo section of that bus? God, she did a lot of stuff. She did a lot she of stuff. She put people in the volcano. Wait, what? <laughs> she left people in a volcano in one of the episodes. She's, like, basically Dr. Doom at this point. I do not remember uh, that, but, like, the right that's parallel. amazing. That's amazing. That's not quite the right parallel. What villain is she? But regardless, <laughs> yes, she's definitely something out of a superhero comic villain. Yeah. At this point. I'm glad I feel way less morally conflicted about Pizzazz being my favorite in the comic because she just has the coolest faces and the coolest look. Because I'm like, man, she was like she was in the comic. I'd feel really, or in the cartoon, I'd feel really messed up right now. <laughs> no, it's true. In the, in the comic book, there's a lot more nuance. She has the ambition and the aggression, but, like, is not literally a cartoon villain that is putting people into volcanoes, which I do not remember, and now I have to look up. Do you know what season that was? I think I've only watched the first, I think I've only rewatched the first season, but, like, old cartoons, the first season is, like, a million episodes, so, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's when they're in Hawaii, they, like, go to Hawaii for something. Oh, okay, all right. All right, I will. I will look it yeah. up in Marvel. Yeah. All right. I'm glad other people are watching gem cartoons like from the 80s with their zero dollar animation budget still because it's it's still they're still fun, you know. It was very special. <laughs> um, what other tragic did I watch? They've remade Thundercat so many times that I feel like I'm 75 years old when I say this, but, like, I watched the original Thundercat. Yeah, yeah. Which was also messed I, up. The poor the poor kid was time-displaced and no one ever talked about it. He was a, he was a, he was a, a child's mind in an adult's body, and if you think about the issues around that, that's pretty complicated. You right, know, and like, they were instantly like, you're in charge now, and it's like, he is 12. He is 12 years old. He should not be in yeah. charge at all. Kitara should be in charge. Duh. But, you Kitara. know, she's a woman. <laughs> Can't have that. Yeah. No one listens to girls. They're smelly. I mean, we had She-Ra. Somebody was listening to girls. Although she was also messed up. she was really messed up. Have you ever seen... Uh, 
He-Man and She-Ra Secret of the Sword? No. Oh is God. it a cartoon? There was a... It is. And it was it was the movie that introduced her, and she was a villain and then had a redemption arc because she was so attracted to Adam that she became uh, a good guy and then found out they were brother and sister. Ah, oh, God, why? Well, I do remember the them. movie. I remember okay, the movie existed, remember? but I don't remember. No, they're like hitting on each other. Like, shit gets weird. <laughs> I blame George Lucas for that. Well, that would have been, yeah, no, that would have worked, yeah. But the, this is also why I'm such a huge advocate for Sailor Moon. None of the really weird stuff happens until, like, 90 episodes in. You know, it's, you know, yeah. Sailor so Moon, once you're committed, well, they drop the weird stuff. Incest. That's true. That's yeah. true. Well, the only we, time we there's love implied, everyone. Yeah. The only time there's implied incest is when the American censors tried to play off the lesbian couple as cousins. So that's. The, yeah, uh, that's not the fault. The that's their own fault. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's cousins anyway. You know, I, it's the law to me a bit unclear on those matters. Maybe question mark? Yeah. yeah. No, I recognize that my lack of Sailor Moon knowledge is a serious oversight of my cultural education that I will eventually have to get around to rectifying. I have, yeah, I have to finish. I enjoyed what I saw of it, but I never got a chance to finish. And every time I run into Babs, I feel like she knows and she sees right through me. And it's like, I promise I will finish. I promise. I promise. As in, as in Babs Tar? Yeah. And not Babs Gordon, just making sure. Cause, well, I would, right. as someone, yeah, as someone writing Stephanie Brown, I would definitely recommend the Sailor Venus, like the Codename V manga. That's just the two volumes. Because I've always felt that there's such a kinship between that between those two characters because you never really saw it in the cartoon because they never got into, because they had two different stories. Sailor Venus had her own independent superhero story before she joined the other scouts. And she's just this really this slacker who um, in order to get her to train her animal companion had to create an arcade game just to get her to focus on training. So there's a, a really, she's, Sailor Venus is like the original geek girl, the superhero, really, in terms of, you know, going to the arcade and spending her money trying to get the stuffed animals out of stuff like that. And even writing Slash. She has, she's writing Slash of characters in her own world at one point. And it's just, yeah, it, it's, it's nuts, okay. but she remains That's com- amazing. completely irrelevant to this day. So when Brian Q. Miller had, like, the Bender little figure, or when the artist on that on that panel had like the Futurama stuff in Stephanie's house in the background, I was like, man, this is just feeling it. <laughs> well, thank you again for coming on the show because we have been really, really looking forward to having you for a while. Um, and you know this this comic has been really interesting and and a, a, a great jumping off point for conversation about a lot of things. So really appreciate you coming on to join us. And when your uh, new pieces come out from that are not able to be spoken about yet, I hope you will <laughs> return unto us at that point and bestow upon us again additional conversation with regards to your works. I would love to. And then by then we can talk about all the spoilers that we could not talk about this time. 
which I am still learning <laughs> not to do. Um, yeah, yeah, oh my God, no, I can't believe I have to wait till Wednesday to get the new issue. It's like, ah, I need it now. I'm sorry. If it were up to me, I'd spoil everything for everybody, and then we could all just sit through it together and marinate. But that's not how it works. <laughs> um, but yes, thank you so much for having me, uh, and thank you for being nervous alongside me. I have such ridiculous stage fright, and this has been super fun, and I was not nervous at all. That was amazing. Thank Yay! you. Yay! <laughs> so before you go, though, yeah, we always want to give folks opportunity that uh, to basically plug themselves. So if you want to throw out like your Twitter feed or if you got a website or anything like that, you want to people to check out and connect with you, like here's your platform. Oh, thank you. Uh, yes, please come visit me on Twitter. I am GL Valentine on Twitter, and I am also on Tumblr as Questionable Taste Theater because I believe in truth and advertising. Um, yes. And visit me. I talk a lot about terrible TV shows and movies and really good TV shows and movies, and it can be hard to distinguish, but I try very hard to, like, make it clear when I am talking about recommending I, Frankenstein versus recommending Clouds of Stills Maria. So I try. What's the Tumblr one more time? I'm, I'm going to get that link out. Uh, the Tumblr is Questionable Taste Theater. Uh, T-R-E, like all the theater nerds in my high school spelled it. Oh, there we go. Thank you. And Tumblr is also where I end up putting all of my Catwoman costume research, which I'm a little behind on, but I promise I will catch up on so that is where we do all of the costume sourcing and the mood boards and everything. Oh, cool. I'll tweet that out. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, and then for folks who want to catch the latest issue of Catwoman, uh, issue 43 is on shelves this Wednesday. So uh, we've talked it up. Uh, I think all of us recommend it. So go get it. You'll you'll enjoy it. Um, it's been a great series. So we Thank like you. it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, welcome. Um, and of course, I want to thank Emma for joining us. It's always fantastic having you. Um, and your turn to plug your if you. Like. Um, well, I I too a lot of spoilers and things in the work. I can't really talk about. Um, but I am the comics editor at the Rainbow Hub, and uh, we're really trying to quickly make ourselves a name um, in comics criticism, and you know, being being a voice for the LGBTQIA community um, in fandom. Obviously, there's a lot of other great you know female writers and and queer writers, but uh, you know, we want to give them our, a run for the money in the most uh, what's the word uh, friendly competition possible. That's kind of my <laughs> home base. Um, but you'll see my name popping up in other places soon. Um, if you're a big wrestling fan, which you probably aren't, because you probably skipped this to watch Stephen Amell um, confront Stardust on Raw tonight. But, uh, yeah, if you, <laughs> you want to see a little tiny bit of comics and mostly wrestling, you can find me at uh, here, uh, here comes one without fear.tumblr.com, which is a pun based on Daredevil and Nikki Bella. But, um, generally speaking, you can find me on Twitter at E-M-M-A-H-O-U-X-B-O-I-S, where there's a lot more comics relevant thought excellent uh so we're going to be wrapping up we're coming off on uh, two hours it's a nice extended long episode um as mentioned earlier we've got a special episode this thursday 10 p.m steve orlando is joining us uh, another dc comics writer 
Um, but we're not going to be discussing Midnighter. We're actually going to be discussing his new creator-owned series, Virgil, uh, which uh, I believe the time to pre-order it is wrapping up, which is why we're doing a special episode, because we want him to get his plug-in, because he's a friend of the site and we like him. Um, so you can listen in. We'll have a link probably tomorrow up that you can uh, sign up and make sure to not miss the episode. And of course, we're going to have the uh, archive of this on our website probably tomorrow as well. So uh, if you want to take it on the go, you can. We are on SoundCloud. What are the other ones, Alana? I always forget it. SoundCloud. iTunes. We're on iTunes. iTunes. What was and the third one? I always forget one the other goes one. Up like Stitcher. Stitcher is the last one. Stitcher, that's but it. I think it yes. goes up like right away. So we'll be on iTunes yeah. shortly. Yeah. And I believe Stitcher is pretty soon after. It's SoundCloud. That's their slight delay. Uh, so you're going to be able to, to re-listen to it tomorrow. And uh, if you missed anything, listen to it again. Uh, so... You can join us on Thursday, and in between then, of course, we're at graphicpolicy.com. We're on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all at Graphic Policy. We keep it nice and consistent. So thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm Brett. I'm Ilana. Thanks for listening, and keep it geeky.